Well, this is the third chapter of the book of Job, and it's on page 510 in the Old Testament part. Job chapter 3, beginning at verse 1. After this, Job opened his mouth and cursed the day of his birth. He said, May the day of my birth perish, and the night that said a boy is conceived. That day may it turn to darkness. May God above not care about it. May no light shine on it. May gloom and utter darkness claim it once more. May a cloud settle over it. May blackness overwhelm it. That night may thick darkness seize it. May it not be included among the days of the year, nor be entered in any of the months. May that day be barren. May no shout of joy be heard in it. May those who curse days curse that day, those who are ready to rouse Leviathan. May its morning stars become dark. May it wait for daylight in vain and not see the first rays of dawn. For it did not shut the doors of the womb on me to hide trouble from my eyes. Why did I not perish at birth and die as I came from the womb? Why were the knees to receive me and breasts that I might be nursed? For now I would be lying down in peace. I would be asleep and at rest with kings and rulers of the earth who built for themselves palaces now lying in ruins with princes who had gold, who filled their houses with silver. Oh, why was I not hidden away in the ground like a stillborn child, like an infant who never saw the light of day? There the wicked cease from turmoil, and there the weary are at rest. Captives also enjoy their ease. They no longer hear the slave drivers shout. The small and the greater there, and the slaves are freed from their owners. Why is light given to those in misery and life to the bitter of soul? To those who long for death that does not come, who search for it more than for hidden treasure, who are filled with gladness and rejoice when they reach the grave. Why is life given to a man whose way is hidden, whom God has hedged in, for sighing has become my daily food. My groans pour out like water. What I feared has come upon me. What I dreaded has happened to me. I have no peace, no quietness. I have no rest, but only turmoil. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. And the second reading can be found in the New Testament on page 1153 from, oh, hang on, the first book of Corinthians, or was it the second book? Sorry? That's the first mistake. Chapter 12. Second book of Corinthians, chapter 12, verses 7 to 10. 
because of these surpassingly great revelations. Therefore, in order to keep me from becoming deceited, I was given a thorn in my flesh, a, a messenger of Satan to torment me. Three times I pleaded with the Lord to take it away from me. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weakness, so that Christ's power may rest on me. That is why, for Christ's sake, I delight in weaknesses, in insults, in hardships, in persecutions, in difficulties. For when I am weak, then I am strong. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thank you, Isabel and Faye. Well, good morning. As we come to God's word and we open ourselves to what it is that God is saying to us this morning, let's just first of all pray together. So, Heavenly Father, we pray that your written word of Scripture may now and always be our rule, your Holy Spirit our teacher, and your greater glory our supreme concern, through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. I don't know about you, but Easter Saturday is not a day which up until now has had much impact on me. As you'll know, it's part of the bank holiday weekend, and for some, a celebration of the beginning of spring. A time to buy and gorge on chocolate. An important day in the sporting calendar. I know for myself, I was on the wreck watching Bath play. And it's a break between Good Friday and Easter Day. And here in church, if you are with us, we have powerful and moving services as we reflected on the events of the Last Supper and spent time thoughtfully at the cross, which was so necessary as we move from the triumphal entry of Palm Sunday to Easter Day itself. But what about Easter Saturday? For those most directly affected, it was not a day of preparation or of relaxation or fun. For those first followers of Jesus, the first Easter Saturday must have been an utterly appalling day. When they'd responded to Jesus' call to follow me, they'd given up everything and over time had come to believe that he was the Messiah, long promised in Scripture, who would set Israel free and restore it to its former glories. And for them, this was surely confirmed on Palm Sunday as the people of Jerusalem welcomed Jesus as a king. And they would have been right in the forefront as Jesus' closest followers. They must have felt so good, dreaming of a glorious future. So how had it come to this? And so quickly, for all their protestations of lifetime support, when it came to the crunch, they'd let him down. They'd fled, so that apart from John, he died alone. And after all, as they thought, if they'd taken their leader, who was to say they weren't next? 
They were terrified, humiliated, grief-stricken, and so ashamed that they hid away on Easter Saturday, <coughs> heart-sick at the way that they'd let him down, with no idea of what the future held, with one question burning in their hearts, why? Why did this happen? It was all going so well. Or so they thought. And where was God in this? Why did he let it happen? And in the silence of that dreadful day, God would have seemed absent. Which is our theme for this morning as we continue our series on listening to God. And this is an experience I'm sure all of us are likely at some point to have had, or if we haven't had it yet, we may yet have at some time. And I think it's very important that we acknowledge that. Because life isn't, as we know, all Palm Sundays. There are Easter Saturdays as well. And God uses both of them for our good. And this was something that Job, in the Old Testament, knew only too well, as you will have heard from our reading from chapter 3. And we will look at his story to see how it can relate to us today. In Philip Roth's tragic novel, American Pastoral, it follows the exploits, exploits of someone who lives the American dream through high school and college and into adult life. He becomes a star athlete. He marries Miss Jersey. He takes over his father's business and settles down. In other words, all was probably as perfect as he could think it would be. But then his American dream turns into a nightmare. His daughter unexpectedly leaves home and joins a terrorist group. She commits an act of terrorism which leaves one person dead and then becomes a fugitive. And from then on, the novel trucks the father's desperate search for the daughter he loves and his hopeless attempt at trying to make any sense of what has happened. And as it's said of him in the book, he had learned the worst lesson that life can teach that it makes no sense. And which, without God, ultimately, I believe it does not. And in many ways, this modern-day version of the story of Job, except in the book of Job, God takes centre stage. And when we first meet Job in chapter 1, he is a picture of contentment. He has a happy, settled family, great wealth, and he's described as the greatest man among all the peoples of the East. And our focus this morning is just going to be on the first three chapters of Job, so unfortunately I won't have time to mention the infamous comforters. That's just to put that in, so in case you wonder if I've forgotten them. But this, as you'll know, is about to change. And it changes because of an argument in heaven as Satan asserts before God that there is no sincere love for him on earth. 
Wrong, God answers. Have you considered my servant Job? There is no one on earth like him. He is blameless and upright, a man who fears God and who shuns evil. <laughs> Satan will have none of it. Does Job fear God for nothing? You've blessed him, but stretch out your hand and stretch everything that he has and he will surely curse you to your face. So God allows Satan to test Job. The only constraint he is put in is that Job is still alive at the end of it. And what happens is, as if you are standing in a beautiful church with a stunningly arranged and ordered glass window. Moments later, the window implodes and there are fragments of glass everywhere and you are standing in the middle of an inexplicable tragedy. For out of nowhere, as it must appear to Job, his life is laid in ruins by a series of disasters that rob him of his possessions and his children, which raises the question, will he remain faithful to God? And his response is a confession of faith. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. May the name of the Lord be praised. Even in the bad times, he could praise God for who he is. But that, having attacked those closest to him, Satan now assails Job himself, as he thinks that if he attacks his health, his loyalty to God will collapse. So Job is afflicted with painful sores over his whole body, which leave him disfigured and racked with pain. So bad is it that he takes a piece of broken pottery and scrapes himself as he sits among the ashes. What a picture of utter, total <coughs> misery and how far his life has changed. And just to rub it in, even his wife turns on him. Are you still holding on to your integrity, she says to him? Curse God and die. And Job's response is a key theme of the whole of the book of Job. Shall we accept good from God and not trouble? In other words, will we only trust God when things are going well? Which I'm sure we'll recognise is a very modern temptation. And to answer his own question, Job has to plumb the depths of human experience. He has had enough, as we see in chapter 3, as we've had read to us. Here is the death wish as seen nowhere else in Scripture. Job opens his mouth and he curses the very day of his birth. May the day of my birth perish and the night it was said a boy is born. And in similar vein until he longs for the release of death as he has no peace 
no quietness. I have no rest, he says, but only turmoil. And it may very well be that for some of us, this is an experience we can relate to personally. We don't know what to do with it. If so, we can learn from Job. Because the first thing you notice, he doesn't put on a good face and pretend that all is well. He tells it how it is, how it really is. And this is prayer as lament. Like David in Psalm 22, words repeated by Jesus on the cross. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And if that is our experience of life, we should tell God so. Everything that affects us matters to God. The darkest subjects are proper subjects for conversation with God. When Job articulates his hurt and confusion, he is bringing everything into God's domain. Nothing in his life is out of bounds to God. And the prayer of lament can be a way of facing up to reality. When we're at the end of our tether, when inside we're screaming, where are you, God? Are you there at all? Why don't you do something? Walter Bruegemann, the theologian, in his book, The Message of the Psalms, calls laments like Job's statements of disorientation. And he goes on to say, the harsh and abrasive speech of a statement of disorientation may penetrate the deception and say, no, this is not how it really is. In such a case, language leads experience so that the speaker speaks what is unknown and unexperienced until it is finally brought to speech. It is not this way until it is said this way. And it is therefore no wonder that the church has avoided these psalms of lament, for they lead us into dangerous acknowledgement of how life really is. They lead us into the presence of God, where everything is not civil <coughs> and polite. They cause us to think unthinkable thoughts and utter unutterable words. Perhaps worst of all, they lead us away from the comfortable religious claims of modernity in which everything is managed and controlled. In our modern experience, but probably also in every successful and affluent culture, it is believed that enough power and knowledge can tame the terror and eliminate the darkness. Very much a religion of orientation operates on that basis. But our honest experience, both personal and public, attest to the resilience of the darkness in spite of us. The remarkable thing about Israel is that it did not banish or deny darkness from its religious enterprise. It embraces the darkness as the very stuff of new life. Indeed, Israel seems to know that new life comes from nowhere else.
So we have divine permission to stand in God's presence with our heartbreak, but we are not left lamenting. For God understands, he hears. He doesn't want to have an ear of religiosity or properness. He wants us to be honest with him. And for after all the trauma God, Job has been through, God finally answers him. But you have to get to chapter 38 to get there. He has raged against God, but only because he believes in God. Not once throughout the drama, which ends with God's response from chapter 38 onwards, has Job yielded to unbelief. Doubt often, but never unbelief, despite the extreme provocation. And now God speaks. Standing in Job's shoes, we might reasonably expect the Lord to spell out why things happened in the way that they did, and perhaps even be apologetic for all the anguish he'd put him through. Huh, not a bit of it. Instead, God parades creation past Job for his admiration through a series of unanswerable questions we find in chapters 38 on to 41. God says to him, were you there when I laid the earth's foundations? Have you comprehended the vast expanses of the earth? Tell me if you know all this. Have you given orders to the morning or shown the dawn its place? And many, many more like it. Perhaps when you get home, read those chapters. They're absolutely wonderful. For God allows creation to speak for him, assuring Job of his greatness and his ever-present nature. And through this experience, Job begins his journey towards a vision of God which will be deep, wide and high enough to cover life as it really is and to a place where God blesses the second part of his life more than the first. But like Job, we must travel before we arrive at that healing vision for ourselves. Through darkness into light, through death into resurrection, through disorientation into a new orientation, many times over. For the disciples on that first Easter Saturday, and for Job, God sometimes seemed absent. And in preparing for this morning, and I can assure you it wasn't easy, and in preparing for this, I've become aware of the danger in assuming that suffering is to be equated with God's absence. And that's simply not the case. I've spoken in the past of my own experience when life hurts through pain, through guilt and depression. But for myself, I have to say that even at the lowest point, I was still aware of God's presence and know that I would not have got through without him. But I've met and known people 
for whom the long dark night of the soul is a reality. And that may very well be your reality now, or perhaps has been in the past. For whom God seems distant and silent. One of my most profound experiences of ministry was working at the RUH alongside the chaplain at the time, a man called Chris Roberts. He had the most attuned spiritual antennae I've ever encountered. So that when we did ward rounds, he would know at what level to speak to people. It could range from the previous day's football results to the deepest personal issues. And one of the things he was most concerned about was to move people from the why question, which if dealt upon could become very destructive, to the how question, which faced the reality of the situation and how it could be dealt with. Because as you'll notice, God doesn't answer Job's why question, but he reveals himself as the ever-present Lord who sometimes chooses to hide his face. And God's presence is enough for Job. As he says, Surely I spoke of things I did not understand, things too wonderful for me to know. My ears had heard of you, but now my eyes have seen. If we get a series of cloudy, overcast days, it can seem that the sun has gone missing. But we know from all our knowledge and experience that it is there. And one day it will shine again. And as with Job, God has not left us ignorant of his presence. Through creation, through scripture, and supremely through Jesus and the work of the Holy Spirit. But until God draws all things to himself at the end of the age when Jesus will return, we are very aware that we live in a risky, imperfect world where bad things happen, where there is pain and suffering. And we often do not know why things happen in the way that they do. But the question in the end for each one of us, is the same one that was for Job. And it is, at the end of it, do we trust God and believe his promises? Not just in the good times when the sun shines and all is well, but in the bad times when everything seems dark and overcast. And this, in the end, is a matter of choice. Do we choose to trust God so that we never doubt in the dark what he has told us in the light? For as Job experienced, God is Lord of all, and I do mean all. Nothing is outside of his control, so that in our dealings with him, Nothing is off limits. However much we may try to conceal, he knows it anyway. And he still loves us. 
And this was manifested supremely at the cross, where Jesus took all our sin and pain into himself so that we could be freed ultimately from its consequences. And this was the ultimate proof that God does not stand aloof, but he is with us and for us every step of the way. As Paul says in Romans, and we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. God is sovereign and he was working his purposes out in Job's life and in the lives of the disciples on Easter Saturday, even if it was not what they would have chosen. And like them, we can know that God is for us, even when for a while he hides his face and seems absent. For it is then that his impact on our lives may be at its most profound. And I'd like to finish with a poem which, for a few years back, was very popular, written by a lady called Mary Stevenson, called Footprints in the Sand. Some of you, I guess, will know it, and hopefully it will help us to draw together what we've been thinking as we reflect on what it is that God is saying to each one of us. So I'll read it and hopefully the words will appear behind me. Thank you. One night I dreamed I was walking along the beach with the Lord. Many scenes from my life flashed across the sky. In each scene I noticed footprints in the sand. Sometimes there were two sets of footprints. Other times there was only one set of footprints. And this bothered me because I noticed that during the low periods of my life, when I was suffering from anguish, sorrow or defeat, I could see only one set of footprints. So I said to the Lord, you promised me, Lord, that if I followed you, you would be at walk with me always. But I have noticed that during the most trying periods of my life, there have only been one set of footprints in the sand. Why, when I needed you most, have you not been there for me? And the Lord replied, the times when you have seen only one set of footprints was when... I carried you.